Hi, my name is Jessie from the Vegan Society of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and we can be found at www.vegansociety.co.nz, and you are listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Vegetarian. Vegan. Yeah, well. Let's get it right. You used the word animals, but I suppose what you should have said is non-human animals. Welcome to episode 69 of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. Non-veganism is like eating a bag of cement. It hardens you up. Either that or it kills you from toxic discharge of having cement in your... Va- whatever. Coexisting with Non-Human Animals, the premier podcast of the Invercargill Vegan Society, southernmost vegan organisation in the world, possibly, and former one-man vegan society. Coming to you from Invercargill at the bottom of New Zealand. 1969. The year man, or at least two American chaps, landed on the moon. Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind. Neil A. Armstrong, Michael Collins, Edward E. Aldrin. Neil, Michael Collins, who kept the orbiter in a handbrake turn going round and round and round the big rock, and Buzz Aldrin, you know, the guy that stars in Toy Story. What a beautiful message of using German-designed rockets and a who's-got-the-biggest-dick measuring contest to see who would be the first to race into space. The plaque used a little-known font called Futura, or Futura, or Futura, depending on how you like to say it, also designed by the Germans. You may remember it from such vegan society logos as Invisox, the Invercargill Vegan Society. Myself excluded, I wouldn't have it any other way. Most of us were born outside glorious Invercargill. They first set foot upon the city to promote peace for all the animal kingdom. I actually recited part of Neil Armstrong's famous speech on landing in Auckland, New Zealand, for the National Animal Rights Conference this year, on the 20th of July, in New Zealand time, 2011. Yes, I know, so those couple guys actually would have landed on the 21st going by New Zealand time, but whatever, the date is remembered as the 20th, so I picked the 20th to fly out to Auckland, New Zealand's largest city on the North Island. As I recited over the Boeing 737 Lunar Landers jet engines, 20th of July. Thank you very much. 20th of July. 20th of July. I took an average of a hundred photos slash videos each day I was in Auckland. What I said, or tried to say, unheard over that pesky atmosphere and Auckland airport noise, I should have asked the pilot to land the large plane on a barren, dusty surface. I'm sure they'd be cool with that. 20th of July, 2011. One small step for a man, one giant leap for Invercargill kind. Well, something like that. My memory is as fuzzy as the recording is loud. 
Evidently, recording on your iPhone 4 is not quite as clear as late 1960s reel-to-reel tape technology. This crazy country I live in has just had her slash his slash its election. Our centre-right, think Democrats, party national stayed in power, as expected. But the interesting change was with our Green Party. The Greens are a fairly young party, which is gaining traction. In this election, the Green Party got nearly 11% of the vote, over 10% of the vote, the third largest party in New Zealand by far. It's amazing to think about. New Zealand has MMP. Briefly, our main political parties work to form coalitions to rule over the hapless populace. It's not a matter of Republicans versus Democrats. It's a matter of, generally, either the main centre-left Labour or main centre-right party National gaining power, usually with the help of all kinds of little buggers, like the parasitic remora, biting into other far larger fish for a free ride as they suck blood and whatever. It's somewhat unlikely for any one party to get 51% of the vote. Traditionally, the two main parties are roughly 40-odd percent each, with a teeny tiny party or two needed to make the majority. As our centre-left party Labour crumbles into dust, after National got a whole essentially 48% of the vote, 47.99, and Labour got a lousy 27%, it's up to the rising stars of the New Zealand political scene to gleam, the Greens. And all their voters just throw their heads back in sheer delight and, uh, uh, scream? Nearly 11% of the vote. Remember, in America, it's really a two-party thing. Either you vote for the party against hospitals, education, ending wars, human rights, green technology, climate change, veganism, truth, love and decency, or you can vote Republican and add hating on evolution, enhanced interrogation, for everyone in the world not born in the American South, those communists are hiding everywhere, you know, and mandatory daily self-whipping of your bare back with a made-in-Detroit steel chain while you pray to Jesus. In America, around half a percent of voters decide to throw away their vote by going for the American Green Party. They don't have coalition governments. For the Green Party to get a word in edgewise, they'd have to get area 51% of the vote. You never know. Maybe the election day 2012 will be their lucky day. As proud of my country as I am, and her slash his slash its fine system of government, Mother Britain once again shows her naughty former colony how it's done. Yes, we may have a Green Party who just got over 10% of the vote, 20 times what the American Green Party can muster, and the New Zealand Green Party actually gets laws passed, but to the best of my knowledge, we have no vegan politicians in this country. It's a disgrace. A couple Green Party MPs are vegetarian, including Gareth Hughes, who spoke at the New Zealand National Animal Rights Conference 2011, a political debate about animal welfare laws. Do New Zealanders really love animals? Hughes spoke about having other animals killed as a personal choice, which got boos from the audience, who demanded the politicians say, well, we think it's wrong to kill other animals, but into a million years' time from now, when everyone has somehow stumbled upon veganism on their own, we need to protect their rights to inch larger cages in the next 20 years. I was quite shocked to find the Green Party had printed off a statement on animal rights for the conference, 
because while asking for larger cages in the meantime, an independent commissioner of animal welfare, they actually name drop Professor Gary Francione, which I hadn't expected. Quote, what is the Greens' view of animal rights? In our policy on animal welfare, the vision statement is that the intrinsic worth of animals be recognised. This is the ideal towards which we strive. One of our charter principles is that of non-violence, and we believe that this should be extended to non-human animals as well. However, it is important to make the distinction here between animal welfare and animal rights. A legal recognition of the intrinsic worth of animals would mean a move away from the view of non-human animals as property. This would bring us to the position of Gary Francione, who has asserted that the only rights non-human animals really need is the right not to be property. In any event, the law of Aotearoa New Zealand, the Animal Welfare Act 1999, is focused on the prevention of cruelty or ill-treatment in the words of the Act. So. While we support animal rights as a parliamentary political party, we can only work with the law as it is, and aim for the best possible outcomes in welfare law, and there is still plenty to be done. That statement is more than a little odd, considering the Green Party do not explicitly promote veganism. <laughs> Indeed, their campaign flyer, sent around houses nationwide, has a cover of a smiling young boy by a stream, as his family go fish-killing for the entertainment. Trying to salvage my national pride here, it's not like any other country out there boasts a record greater than zero count for vegan politicians though, right? The Vegan Option is a great new show which you can find on iTunes, The Vegan Option, with Ian and Diana Fleischman. And being the witty, intelligent, charming guy I am, May I be the first person in Diana's whole life to point out Fleischman is probably American for Fleischman. And, if my ye old German is correct, probably a name for Butcher. Yeah, nobody's ever thought of telling you that before, Diana. A question of mine was asked to all three vegan members of parliament over there in Mother England. Put your questions to Britain's vegan MPs. I think it's important we try and build a mass movement. In the second of three shows about what the vegan option means in politics, their answers take us from personal compromises to Parliament's first debate on veganism. And if that is the case, I do expect these two to be sitting <laughs> next to me so I can <laughs> put the spotlight on those two as well. Absolutely. I'm Ian McDonald. And I'm Diana Fleischman. With stories and analysis from a vegan perspective, this is the vegan option. Last show, we brought the world's vegan lawmakers together by asking the world's largest vegan caucus, Britain's three vegan members of parliament, questions from their counterparts around the world. This show, we'll find out more about what the vegan option means for them in practice. And next show, we find out how they did in Parliament's World Vegan Day debate. Now, the three MPs, all from the opposition Labour Party, are Chris Williamson, the ex-bricklayer and Saboteur from the English Midlands, Kerry McCarthy, the UK's first vegan MP and her party's social media expert, 
and Cathy Jamieson, who had a career in Scottish politics before coming to Westminster. Jordan Wyatt of Internet Radio Show Coexisting with Non-Human Animals emailed an audio question. You can hear his show at coexisting.co.nz. We made a guest appearance on his World Vegan Day show. How do you feel about mentioning your veganism? Are you afraid about losing votes or being seen as too radical? I've never been fearful about that. I've always, you know, made it well known that I'm uh, I'm a vegan and uh, yeah some people do accuse you of being an extremist but I think the people that level those sorts of criticisms are the kind of people that wouldn't vote for me anyway um, so uh, for me I think it's quite important that we that we that for me that we do uh, say that we're vegan because I think it's important that we try and build a mass movement uh, you know, I mean, some people might think it's okay to individualise it, and that's fine if they want to do that. But I want to try and change the world. It might sound a bit naive, but you know, you can't hide your light under a bushel. Well, I think when I got elected in two thousand five, in my maiden speech, I made reference to two of my very well-known predecessors, Stafford Cripps and Tony Benn, and they were both vegetarian and both teetotal. So I was drawing a parallel. Mm. Um, and somebody started booing. I think it was the teetotal bit that somebody started booing at. It was Stephen Pound, as you can imagine. Um, but I'm consciously then thinking, I don't want it to be like all oh, this vegan has descended mm. on us. Um, so I was a bit coy about it to start with. I'm lucky that in Bristol they've got the biggest vegan fair in Europe happens in Bristol. So if there's anywhere where it's accepted, it's it's you know it might be a lot more difficult if I represented you know one of the northern mining towns or whatever. But um, I was a bit coy to start with, and it's partly because people don't really understand it. But I think now I've got to the position that Chris has where I think it's really important to nail your colours to the mast. And what I love is like when online people find out you're a vegan MP, other vegans, and they just can't believe that they've actually got some vegans that are in Parliament now. You can find The Vegan Option online at theveganoption.org. Diana is not the only Fleischman out there, coming to you from the Department of Weird Coincidences. The very latest episode of This Week in Tech mentioned another. Is that actually his feed? <laughs> yes! Glenn Fleischman, another uh, journalist. Kane's campaign is suspended as in, the, as in the way a brick when dropped suspends itself in the air. They used that apparently. We're going to suspend our campaign. Speaking of names and descriptions mentioned on technology podcasts becoming material for your animal rights show, this clip comes from the fourth episode of The Verge Mobile. Greetings, yes. Uh, speaking of words, we, we have kind of built up a trend of having a special word of the day. And our special word for today is Trimuti, which I probably butchered, but it comes from no, India. No, I think that's about right. Yeah, yeah. It comes from India, and it's a reference to the... Free Hindu gods? Maybe there's more. I'm really ignorant about this, but I'm looking at the Wikipedia. There's definitely more than three. (laughs) Okay, the three big dudes, right? Um, I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry right now, and I'm I'm being educated as I'm describing this. I just came in from one of our awesome readers slash listeners, and uh, it's to do with the three gods, the god of creation, the god of transformation, uh, and the god of maintenance. And those are the Brahma is the god of creation, Vishnu is the maintainer, and Shiva is the destroyer. Vegan or non-vegan, we all know what a horrible thing it is to be a butcher, to butcher others, to be butchered. 
Out of all the gods there are, which kind do we want to be? A destroyer? Someone who maintains things as they are? Or someone who creates? My vote goes for creating a new vegan world, based on respect, where nobody is a butcher, nobody is the butcher e or butcher-erd. I've seen people with the surnames of Butcher and Leather. I recently noticed a surname of Slaughter on a business card. Imagine being a vegan with such a surname. I'd never heard of a Jordan Slaughter before, but apparently it's not that uncommon. As my father mentions, once we got into kayaking, we noticed other kayaks everywhere. After having my eyes open to the surname, making a blog post about it, an American friend shared how her dentist is the surname Slaughter, and this clip popped up on the very next edition of 60 Minutes. 2004, Baird and Congresswoman Louise Slaughter introduced the Stock Act, which would make it illegal for members of Congress to trade stocks on non-public information. Louise Slaughter with the Stock Act. Get this, she was born in the state of Kentucky, a town spelt L-Y-N-C-H. Lynch. Louise Slaughter with the Stock Act from a town called Lynch. A building is named after her. From her Wikipedia entry, Slaughter's efforts to secure funds for her district were recognized by the Rochester Institute of Technology, where it named its Center for Integrated Manufacturing Studies facility the Louise M. Slaughter Building. They should have been clever and named it the Slaughterhouse. Of course, and as always, the Simpsons said it best. Look at all this great stuff, please. Cool, personalized plates. Barclay, Barry, Bert, Bort. Oh, come on, Bort? Mommy, Bobby, buy me a license plate. No, come along, Bort. Are you talking to me? No, my son is also named Bort. Open bucket man to the exit of the nauseator. We have another jumper in the roof of TGM Scratchies. We need more Bort license plates in the gift shop. I repeat, we are sold out of Bort license plates. Speaking of being butchered, check out the slaughterhouse jokes in this report of an impounded pet sheep in the nearby town of Gore. A pet sheep that was locked up in the Gore Pound this week has been spared from death row. Its tearful owner turned up at the Gore District Council yesterday and was given permission to whisk it away to freedom. Animal control staff had uplifted the sheep from a Matara property on Thursday and impounded it because it was trespassing. If the sheep's owner had not claimed it from the pound within seven days and another owner could not be found, the sheep would have faced the chopping block. However, Gore District Council Corporate Services General Manager, that's a complicated name for a small town, <laughs> uh, Russell Duth Duthie, that's also a complicated name, said yesterday its owner had arrived early yesterday to claim her sheep. She was a little bit tearful. She thought we shouldn't have taken the sheep, obviously. The council did not charge the woman its $20 daily fee for impounded livestock. Mr. Duthie said he understood the Matara property owners who asked for the sheep to be removed because it was trespassing had now had second thoughts. I think after it was published in the paper, 
they had a change of heart and said it probably wasn't a problem to have it there. As long as the section was clean and the sheep's owner looked after it, the council had no problem, he said. However, the property owner said yesterday he had not yet decided whether to take the sheep back. He was waiting to hear from the sheep's owner so they could discuss the issue and come to an agreement. I guess she's got a sheep's lawyer. It might be a woolly contract, he quipped. He was unclear where the sheep was residing yesterday, adding the animal had been unfairly dragged into the spotlight. The sheep just wants a peaceful life. He reckons someone is trying to pull the wool over his eyes. Although the animal was not his, the man said he had named the sheep Matt because it was from Matt Aura. He will be as coveted as Shrek next. And long story short, Shrek the sheep was a famous, sort of not really embarrassingly famous sheep from New Zealand and he was found wandering about with a massive coat of, of wool on, sheep's wool, war, uh, wool. and um, yeah, he's just a very well-known sheep in New Zealand supposedly. Oh, look at all the wool on the sheep. You know, it's like, look how big that horse is. Gee, that's a big horse. And Shrek is in, you know, Shrek yoga or something. And yeah, uh, things to be proud of in New Zealand, number 962, Shrek the sheep with a lot of wool on his back. The Southland Times also covered an owner of small dogs, afraid of what would happen to them. An Invercargill Chihuahua owner has asked Mayor Tim Shadbolt to put policies in place so big dogs stop terrorising little dogs in the city's parks and reserves. Chihuahuas don't handle it too well when being ambushed and blindsided by big dogs, so I scoop them up, he said. It's unfair that we dogs get targeted by big dogs, and you can't chance that they aren't going to eat our wee dogs. To have all this language reported on by the same newspaper, joking about killing a sheep who was kept as a pet, another person exaggerating that small dogs were going to be scooped up, and, well, they were scooped up, that they were going to be eaten, and all the while, advertisements are everywhere for local butchers. As reported on jealously by the British tabloid the Daily Mail, New Zealanders can proudly stick out our chests and boast of having the world's heaviest insect. Yeah, take that little Britain. You can keep your three wee vegan MPs. We have big ass bugs. A nature lover has revealed how he spent two days tracking down a giant insect on a remote New Zealand island, you know, the North Island, and got it to eat a carrot out of his hand. See, they're so jealous of our huge insects they have to demeaningly refer to them as an it to objectify them. Mark Moffat's find is the world's biggest insect in terms of weight, which at 71 grams is heavier than a sparrow and three times that of a mouse. The renowned 53-year-old scientist discovered the giant wetter up a tree, and his real-life Bugs Bunny has been declared the largest ever found. After Mark found the female wetter, he feared it, the carrot, before putting it back where he found her. See, so jealous of only having three vegan politicians, they had to admit she is female, then pretend they didn't want to title the world's heaviest bug you know, whatever, governor, you can keep it, before begrudgingly admitting she is a her. Mark, 53, you know, because his age matters for some reason in British tabloids, 
Three of us walked the trails of the small island for two nights, scanning the vegetation for a giant witter. We spent many hours with no luck finding any at all, before we saw her up in a tree. The giant witter is the largest insect in the world, and this is the biggest one ever found. She weighs the equivalent to three mice. She enjoyed the carrot, <laughs> the carrot, so much, she seemed to ignore the fact she was resting on our hands and carried on munching away. She would have finished the carrot very quickly, but this is an extremely endangered species, and we didn't want to risk indigestion. After she had chewed a little, I took this picture, and we put her right back where we found her. So, wetters are kind of like a giant cricket or grasshopper, really, obviously, very big in this case, you know, the world's heaviest insect, in fact. And Weta Digital and Weta Workshops are the companies that Sir Peter Jackson, and he actually is Sir Peter Jackson, I'm not exaggerating, Sir Peter Jackson, created for The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So every time you see a computer-generated effect, otherwise known as CG in the industry, I'm told, um, every time you see those animated effects in the movies and the ma amazing computer graphics, it's all made by Weta Digital, named after these giant New Zealand insects. Can you imagine feeding insects on carrots? I mean, it's an everyday thing as a New Zealander, walking up and down hills and valleys, mountain peaks and glaciers, minding our step, lest we wake the bullrog, pockets stuffed with carrots for the world's heaviest insects to chew on. Crazy. From the Southland Times. Writing poetry probably is not a common pastime for blokes working on the chain at the meatworks. But Terry Lynch is not most blokes. In fact, he's probably only one, I reckon. In an interview in the press in 1995, the meat worker said he was almost scared to go back to work after coming out as a poet. However, his workmates were overwhelmingly supportive after they learned of his wordy efforts. Back then, he had a collection of nearly 30 poems and was looking for a publisher. 16 years on, those poems and more have been self-published in a series of four books. Quote, Shit in Your Eye, 1999, A Summer's Day, bit of a different name there, An Unforgiven Forensic, both 2003, and Aredi Beach, 2007. Aredi Beach, which is the main beach just outside of Invercargill, where the world's fastest Indian was staged. You know, Sir Anthony Hopkins and the fast little motorbike from 1920-whatever. And, um, yeah, go Invercargill, Aredi Beach. It's lovely. Sand dunes, sand, nice waves, no sharks. Uh, sometimes we get blue bottles though, which are kind of like really tiny jellyfish kind of things. They're kind of like a, they pop if you stand on them, um, which you really don't want to stand on them. They're kind of like a little plastic bag. They're really small, um, the size of a strawberry, say, and they are sort of blue, blue bottles, and they have little stingers, and apparently you can get stung by them. But they wash up basically dead and dying on the beach every now and then. It is safe to say Lynch the poet is out and proud. The poems are unashamedly personal, giving an insight into some of the hardships that Lynch has endured and some of the personal triumphs. Lynch takes the reader along on his life journey as he recalls family and friends, illness and issues, and being part of a system that doesn't always work as well as it should. Steve Jobs only knows what they meant by a slaughterhouse, killing thousands, tens of thousands, millions of animals, as a system that doesn't always work as well as it should. Funding from the Community Trust of Southland has allowed all four books to be reprinted, and they are all out now, along with his new book entitled Off Season, 
a selection of short stories and poems about life at the Warwicks, although the off-season is when they're not able to kill animals because they're still busy fattening them up for the next season, the next season of killing animals. Although off-season carries a disclaimer saying it is a work of fiction, the author's 20-plus years working in the industry, you know, killing animals, have given it a sense of authenticity, and I'm sure anyone who's ever known someone at the Warwicks will identify with the characters who appear throughout the book. White gumboots were optional at the book launch held at the Invercargill Public Library earlier this month. So now we have a slaughterhouse poet. I've heard of a warrior poet before from the game Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. You know, you get a lot of flack in the media these days. In a recent press conference, your manager came to your defense. A lot of people say gangster rap is misogynistic posturing by fake-ass idiots who spend more time in drama school than they ever did pimping or hustling dope. Well, I assure you, OG Loke is the real thing. He's hated women all his life. He's sold drugs to school children. He's murdered innocent people just for kicks. But he rhymes like an angel, and I assure you it's all in a good cause. So either way, you can feel good about yourself listening to this music. I'm, I'm just coming down off the 80s. Please don't shoot me, homie. Relax, fool. No one's getting dumped on. I'm a warrior poet. I tell a cautionary tale about life on the streets, you know? <laughs> Only too well. <laughs> Another local news story here in Invercargill, vegan capital of the Southern Hemisphere. Dairy cows in Southland produced almost 5 million more kilograms of milk solids in the 2010-11 season than the previous year, with the extra milk worth more than $37 million. The annual New Zealand dairy statistics, released yesterday, show the number of dairy cows in the region has grown by more than 25,000. You know, we have a whole population of people as 100,000 in the whole province of Southland, 50,000 in Invercargill, about 100,000 in the whole, the whole region, the whole province. So the dairy cows alone have gone, went up 25,000 from 458,306 in the 2009 to 2010 season to 484,000 in 76 in 2010 to 2011 so basically half a million cows let's say at the moment and this whole region only has about 100,000 human animals living in this crazy province there's about 50,000 people in Invercargill there's a couple of small towns of I don't know 10,000 maybe 20,000 well not even 20,000 and yeah the whole province is 100,000 people and about half a million cows the province is now home to 10.7% of the country's dairy herd. Environment Southland Chief Executive Kieran uh, Keogh not sure, said the latest statistics justified what the council was trying to do with its proposed policy changes regarding dairy farming. If approved, the policy would mean new dairy farms, associated dairy grazing, and their related activities would be deemed a discretionary activity and would have to comply with resource consent conditions. Any further growth in Southland's dairy industry had to be done with care, considering issues such as winter feed availability and drought vulnerability. Federated Farmers Southland Dairy Chairman Russell McPherson said Southland's dairy industry was looking very good. However, 
It appeared Environment South and was trying to stifle that growth, which was disappointing. Dairying was a huge contributor to Southland's economic vibrancy, and most dairy farmers were trying to do their best for the environment, he said. Translation, Wah! Wah! Stop eating into our profits! Here's part of a regular clip I like to keep around for such moments, about the local Waituna Lagoon, priceless wetlands, internationally recognised, that are being ruined by mysterious pollution that comes out of a cow's bottom as solid waste. Farmers get all politically correct and have to call it dairy runoff, or better yet, nutrients. We get video of the surrounding cows making nutrients throughout the news segment. Notice how toothless Environment Southland are, unable to stand up to big industry, the dairy farmers. It's a nice word for it, yucky. And that's what it might become. Scientists say algal growth will shut out light to the large vital plants on the bottom and the delicate ecosystem will shut down. And they warn that once this lagoon is lost, it can never be returned to a pristine state. You can't get it back. It's irreversible. Um, it's like losing a species, really, like kakapo dying out or something. Zane Moss says this lagoon was relatively healthy up until a decade ago. I ask him if this decline could be a natural phenomenon, but he says no. Water testing indicates it is being overrun with nutrients, mainly from effluent. Cows graze just metres from the lagoon edge on reclaimed wetlands. This is the main tributary for Waituna. This is Waituna stream itself. And just up the road, cows defecate and urinate into surface water that flows into the lagoon's main tributary. And straight into the lagoon from there. So more nutrients, and when we're trying to cut down the amount of nutrient getting in there, obviously that's not going to happen with uh, access like that to that surface water. He doesn't think this heavy land was ever suitable for dairy farming in the first place. So who let the cows in? Well, that would be the body now headed by Ali Timms, Environment Southland. Yeah, I think, you know, we need to accept some responsibility there. In just the last 10 years, 13 more dairy farms have swung into operation in the Waituna catchment alone. In the whole of Southland, there were just 50,000 cows in 1992. In eight years, that figure climbed to 170,000, and today it stands at just over 458,000. Do you think there's too many dairy farms in Southland? Um, that's a good question. I think that people have come into this area and converted to dairying because it's inexpensive, it's cheaper land, so it's an entry level area. They can make some money down here short term, but that's having a real effect on the environment. So I think people need to think about the way that they're farming down here. Um, perhaps you don't winter stock on Swedes, perhaps they should be having wintering barns, those sorts of things. So basically their answer is to get them out of the nice lush green pastures where they can poop, sorry, make nutrients in all the lagoons and streams and rivers and whatever. And they're basically going to factory farm them in what, are, what we call cow cubicles here. And the cows sort of live in little sort of shed things and 
they uh, they can move around inside the shed, but it's sort of a concrete floor with a matting over it. You know, got to be nice and think about it. Their poor hooves, you know, they make this kind of matting. And they have these big sort of scrolling plastic bristle brushes, sort of like, like at a car wash, the bristles that come down and spin around. They have those sort of screwed into the walls so the cows can rub their back or scratch their back, I guess, by rubbing up against these rolling brush things like you'd see at a car wash. And, uh, yeah, they're fed inside these sheds, and they basically stay there a heck of a lot of the time. And it stops them moving around, you know, um, probably wasting calories that they have to be pumping into breast milk production when they do all those things like walking. That's stealing from the farmers, you know. Uh, costs them more in terms of feed if they have to move more. And, um, yeah, making the paddocks muddy from moving around and hoof prints and all that. Listen, guys, it's pretty clear. It's not an evil, nasty, liberal scientist making up climate change data. It's not a matter of all those whiny greenies smelling of tofu and mung beans and lentils and sunflower seeds. The fact is, you guys have tens of thousands of animals being abused for their exploitable female reproductive system. And the solid waste that comes from their bottoms, you know, nutrients, that's messing up the lagoon, along with a whopping... 89% of local rivers in Southland, 89%, which are labelled as having poor or even very poor water quality. It's not magic, it's not witchcraft, it's pure Penn and Teller bullshit, or more technically, dairy cow nutrient. Another New Zealand event to be proud of, the first cut. A-grade slaughterman Paul Brown at work at the new $15 million extended slaughterhouse at the Alliance Group's Matara plant yesterday as Vaughan Kirk, Grant McFall, and Noel Walker watch. The Alliance Group's Matara Meatworks marked a milestone yesterday with the commissioning of its $15 million upgrade. The extended slaughterhouse will allow the farmer-owned company to increase its beef processing capability from 34 animals an hour to 75, while in the boning room, cutting-edge technology from Iceland traces the yield of a carcass as it passes through each workstation. Plant manager Tony Gilder said the technology would enable the company to maximise returns to shareholders and provide a more ergonomic work environment. There had been a lot of anticipation around the project. It has given the plant a future, <laughs> while it makes other presently living animals the past, and the whole community a lifeline. Mr Gilder acknowledges the sacrifices many people had to make to ensure the project happened. Now, it was up to farmers to support it, he said. You know, by being suppliers of innocent young animals designed to be killed and slaughtered in this awful designed factory. While yesterday's commissioning was low-key, with only 20 animals being processed, he hoped to be processing between 100 and 150 animals within the next few days. When it reached top gear, the new streamlined process would enable the plant to punch through 560 animals in an 8-hour shift. That compares with a previous maximum of 330 in 10 hours. The project was completed in about 3 months and had been an international venture. Icelandic company Morale, one of the world's leading developers and manufacturers of high-tech processing equipment for the food industry, 
has had representatives from Iceland, Denmark, Australia and New Zealand on site. Matara is one of the first meatworks in New Zealand to use the morale technology. It will provide real-time information about every boning and trimming station and every carcass, Mr Gilda said. The increased capability had made Matara the biggest beef processing site in the Alliance Group and one of the biggest in the South Island. It would enable the company to target the large numbers of cattle transported out of the province each year for processing. The ability to have them processed in the province would result in lower costs, a smaller environmental footprint, and improved animal welfare arising from the significantly shorter trucking journeys. It was the beef plant's biggest project since it opened in 1972. I should add about that large numbers of cattle transported out of the province each year for processing. One of my father's friends was a stock truck driver, I guess you'd call him, and apparently when all the local freezing works, the slaughterhouses where animals are killed and their frozen bodies are sent overseas, they would have to drive the giant trucks full of animals peering out of the little metal slats in the sides. They'd have to drive them all the way to the North Island and they'd take the ferry over. They'd take a boat over and presumably so you're taking a boat from one island to the next and it's got trucks loaded on it that have, I don't know, a hundred, tens, a hundred, a lot of animals stuck in the back of this metal truck. And uh, the journey itself would take at least an hour, I guess. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy to think of. They have to take them from the bottom of the South Island all the way to the North Island, involving trucks and a boat. And then they just, what, they dump them off in a big pen and they get killed the next day. They get dropped off during the night, generally, or around the night time or the afternoon, and they're killed the next day, so it's, it's pretty crazy. The comments for that article were good reading. The first one was from Tom. Proud to be animal killers. Such a robust ethical enterprise. Killing others, creatures more helpless than ourselves. For money. Let the blood hit the floor. And that was answered by George. Hey Tom, I am not fussy. If you would like to step up to the plate instead. And another one by Mark. Tom, I'm guessing you're a veg. Or a vegan. Which is fine. But please don't be hating because the rest of us love to eat steak. And a smiley face. And this one. Why, right here is the real comedian of the bunch. Pay attention to this guy. You'll want to remember these hilarious lines. Rob. I am a member of Peter, people for the eating of tasty animals. Tom number one, get some in ya. Tucking into a good steak or lamb roast is like eating a bag of cement. It hardens you up. Vegans, why do you all twitch? Question mark. Have pale skin and no energy all the time. Aaron. Hey Tom, are you guys getting bored, like water bored? At your little Occupy Invercargill site? No question mark. Dandy. So a state-of-the-art slaughter board is not the way to go, Tom? Question mark. Curious opinion for someone seemingly concerned about animal welfare. Well, I added a seventh comment about how animal welfare meant being for killing other animals. But we got to pat ourselves on the back as we dismembered their spines. Pleased with how state-of-the-art our slaughter board was. I'd rather we didn't pat ourselves on the back about how padded our water boards are. 
I don't think you need a mortarboard to understand the difference between killing someone and not killing someone. Incidentally, I didn't know those politically correct dairy farmers had struck yet again. Wikipedia informs me mortarboards, as in, you know, university or college graduations, the little weird cap thing with the thing that dangles off at the tassel, and yeah. Apparently they're now called square academic caps. Not very easy to rhyme. Perhaps that's part of the degree. Can you write a podcast script that rhymes with square academic caps? Uh, spare geographic maps? Uh. Bill Maher has an American television show that I enjoy. I listen to the audio podcast edition. Maher is fr- far from vegan himself. He's on the board of Peter. He has no issue talking about factory farming being bad, but he's not vegan himself. It's a matter of treatment for him. Episode 204 of his show Real Time certainly had him worked up over factory farming and sled dogs being raced, forms of animal exploitation that we ourselves do not participate in. Welcome to an HBO podcast from the HBO Late Night series Real Time with Bill Maher. New rule, you can't keep whining about how they're ruining your pristine wilderness if you're using your pristine wilderness to abuse animals. Every year, Alaskans hold their Iditarod dog sled race, a wonderful tradition that proves if you hit an animal, it'll run. (laughs) I'm starting to think I might be for Alaskan oil drilling if it gets just one fat ass out from behind those poor dogs and onto a snowmobile. Because the Iditarod, it isn't a sport, it's a commute. It doesn't magically stop being animal cruelty just because it's cold. You're not an adventurer. You're Michael Vick in a parka. (laughs) New rule, no more factory farming. Everyone these days seems to get something from President Obama, except animal lovers. Because animal lovers are for free range and humane slaughter, right? What about chicken friends, Ma? Republicans got tax cuts for Paris Hilton, an estate tax repeal for Steve Forbes. Gays got the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. People who don't want to be incinerated in a nuclear blast got that treaty with Russia. (laughs) How about a factory farming law for the people who feel that animals who become food at least shouldn't have to be tortured before they die? Maybe it is a great country, not for animals. Is that really the best we could hope for? To just ask for bigger cages in a few decades' time, or make sure you kill it the right way when I want to eat my meal of killed animal flesh, or stolen breast milk secretions taken from a mother, or, you know, crazy eggs, or why I'd want to eat something that comes out of a hen's bottom is beyond me. Um, it's It's pretty crazy to me. It's just very, very weird, very depressing to think that's what Bill Maher thinks is the best we can expect out of life, and you know, he's not vegan himself, so what do we what do we have to do? I guess we focus on promoting veganism, and then we get to get the big, yay, veganism, at the end. <laughs> These last few weeks, I've been wandering about Invercargill, taking photos of vegan products in Invercargill for the Invercargill Vegan Society website. In fact, that snappy little number is the actual page title, Vegan Products in Invercargill for the Invercargill Vegan Society website. Although, I did condense it into a still quite large Vegan Products in Invercargill. New Zealand 
known by the native Maori name of Aotearoa, land of the long white cloud. Yet, there's hardly a cloud in the sky due to the heat, 30 degrees Celsius. That's over 86 in American, Liberian and Burmese freedom units. Because when I think of human rights and freedom, I think of America, Liberia and Burma slash Myanmar. And we're having 30 degrees Celsius days, almost 90 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, because, of course, in the Southern Hemisphere, this is our summertime around happy December 25th day. So we don't get snow on that amazing day that some people celebrate, and other people, the Grinch-like people among us, don't celebrate. Um, so yeah, we're having sort of beach, uh, sort of December 25th. We have uh, the Coca-Cola ads for that Santa Claus guy, and... Um, yeah, he, he's having a barbecue on the beach, basically, and people are skiing and, and sort of uh, water skiing and surfing and all that for New Zealand summer ads, and that's our image. Although we do have movies like Home Alone, of course, you know, it's American <laughs> parenting at its best. A small Macaulay Culkin left by on his own to fend for himself, and there's snow outside all over the place. And yeah, so we, we are aware that the rest of the world is crazy and full of snow and ice and, and pain and suffering and cold at the moment. But yeah, we're having wonderful summer days. 30 degrees Celsius. It's too bloody hot for me. The last episode of the AR Zone podcast was quite interesting. An interview with Lynn Yates. Here, Professor Roger Yates informs us about that wonderful socialist BBC. I actually knew somebody who worked at the BBC and her job was to take out the three syllable words. Yeah. You know, so that the reporters would, would write them and she would rewrite them to take it all out. Yeah. Because they knew that most of the audience couldn't understand them. Aha! See what happens when the English socialists go and ing-sock a state-owned media? You end up with prole feed. Ed's department, after all, was itself only a single branch of the Ministry of Truth, whose primary job was not to reconstruct the past, but to supply the citizens of Oceania with newspapers, films, textbooks, telescreen programs, plays, novels, with every conceivable kind of information, instruction, or entertainment, from a statue to a slogan, from a lyric poem to a biological treatise, and from a child's spelling book to a newspeak dictionary. And the Ministry had not only to supply the multifarious needs of the party, but also to repeat the whole operation at a lower level for the benefit of the proletariat. There was a whole chain of separate departments dealing with proletarian literature, music, drama, and entertainment generally. Here were produced rubbishy newspapers containing almost nothing except sport, crime, and astrology, sensational five-cent novelettes, films oozing with sex, and sentimental songs which were composed entirely by mechanical means on a special kind of kaleidoscope known as a versificator. There was even a whole subsection, pornosec, it was called in Newspeak, engaged in producing the lowest kind of pornography, which was sent out in sealed packets and which no party member, other than those who worked on it, was permitted to look at. Lynn Yates was asked the pressing question of our time. What do we do about carnivorous plants? I know it keeps me up at night. The ecological systems that exist in the, in the wild. and it, Carnivorous plants are only found in certain habitats and every member in that habitat has its role whether it's a plant or it's an animal. I was listening into a chat when somebody asked would it be a reasonable thing 
given that these are not sentient organisms, that to kill them off because they consume mainly invertebrate animals. I was a bit perturbed by this because the mess we are in in the world is all human-made and it stems mainly from humans interfering with ecosystems. Now, that those carnivorous plants are there in the e ecosystem and they are doing the job, a job, in that system. And I don't think it's up to us to say, because it, it actually consumes insects, that therefore it's, it's our enemy. This is as much a part of that ecosystem as any of the animals are. And they are so interlinked that we keep on doing it. And we are in, in the world, we are, uh, you know, we are reaping what we are sowing with the, what I call not climate change, but climate chaos that it's in, that, uh, you know, and it's all because people keep interfering with ecosystems. So my answer is, we don't know the extent of what that plant is in there. But that plant will be somebody's dinner, as well as it, it having its own dinner. And there is a balance in there. I somewhat disagree with Lynn about balance or any balance or role that we see today. It's emerged over time. It's not necessarily right, correct, or ideal. Evolution has not stopped. Change is all around us, except in the American political system, for which there can be no hope. New Zealand is a land of geological change, being a very young country in the world. The North Island is carved out from bloody volcanoes everywhere you look. There's a volcano or hot springs geological activity. The South Island, where I live, was carved by glaciers, you could say the opposite, cold instead of hot, and yet the effect in terms of sharp angles in the land is similar. Except, you know, the, the smart people, they live in the island where it doesn't still have exploding things going off every now and then, capable of blowing the whole place up. You know, oh no, look out Jordan, the glacier's coming to get you. Gee, I better get in my car, or, you know, simply take a step out of the way step. Gee, if I had stayed still for the next thousand years, I could have been in a really bad situation. Change doesn't have to be created by forces dramatic, though, as Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit-esque as volcanoes and glaciers. Simple erosion from wind and rain is everywhere, except on the moon, <laughs> where the dust is much sharper from being somewhat unworn by strong forces. But even there, Impacts by falling debris, like a couple guys falling from the sky in a steel contraption. This causes craters, so nothing exists by itself. All actions matter, no matter how small. I don't believe we should, or could, go around killing all predators of others, but surely we should help out victims whenever possible, when we see them. It's gonna feel real good about ourselves. <laughs> Gonna make a difference, gonna make it right As I turn up the collar on my favorite winter coat 
see a fly caught in a spider web, I free him or her. It takes a simple tap with my little finger, and suddenly the fly is free. Will they end up in another spider web five minutes later? Who knows? I certainly don't. I don't have all knowledge. <laughs> but it's as simple as flicking them out with a tap, and why wouldn't I do that to save another animal? If I were the one going, help me, I'd truly appreciate being saved. Maybe we might think it was right to leave the dirty fly to die. Hey, the spiders have to eat too. But would we save a damselfly? A dragonfly? A butterfly? What is the difference? They all have fly in their names. Keep doing what you can. And one day, New Zealand will have a vegan politician to boast about. One day, the American Green Party will gain a whole percent of the vote. Our vote has great consequences, as do our actions. Thank you for listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. You can find the script for this episode, as well as downloads for every episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals, at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.co.nz or as Diana helpfully pointed out, coexisting.co.nz. Although, that's too simple to remember. I prefer coexistingwithnonhumananimals.co.nz. It's, you know, complicated and technical, and what does it mean, and oh, how many animals are there in human animals, non-human animals? Yeah, it's more confusing and more difficult to find, so that's the better one. Or you could just go to coexisting.co.nz. Fine, have it your way, Diana. If you'd like to contact me, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email to info at invsoc.org.nz info at invsoc.org.nz I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, Jordan Wyatt, W-Y-A-T-T. Thank you for listening. Away from the notion of animals as things and toward the moral personhood of animals. The choice is ours. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for you. It's certainly better for the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do.